I am Dr. Robin Roth. And I'm Dr. Adrian Rosenthal. Together, we are the Booby Docs, our Instagram account where we talk about breast health in an approachable and educational way. We are both fellowship-trained breast radiologists who have been best friends since day one of med school. We work together, we mom together, and now we podcast together. This is The Booby Docs, the girlfriend's guide to breast cancer, breast health, and beyond. In this podcast, we attempt to bridge the gap between doctor and patient while having some fun along the way, all in around 30 minutes or less. So without further ado, let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please contact your doctor with any symptoms or concerns that you may be having. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Hey, Breasties. It's Robin and Adrian. So this is our podcast, The Booby Docs, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. Who do the horn? <laughs> that you didn't see that coming. Well, we're very excited to be here. When we were thinking about our first guest for the podcast, we knew it had to be a breast surgeon because usually when a patient's diagnosed with breast cancer, a breast surgeon is the first doctor that they see. And when we were thinking about breast surgeons, we knew it had to be Dr. Kayun Flannery. She is an incredible breast surgical oncologist, a great friend, and a mother of four kids. So Dr. Flannery, thank you so much for being our first guest. We're so happy you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be your first guest. Um, I've been a huge fan of the booby docs for some time now. Um, I've been telling everybody that I want to be a booby doc, so I was really touched. So thank you for having me. You are an honorary booby doc. (laughs) So what role does the breast surgeon play for the breast cancer patient? After the patient has seen you guys for a mammogram and, you know, some type of a biopsy, Breast surgeon is almost always the first person that the patient sees after the diagnosis has been made. We usually say that the breast surgeons are the captain of the ship. We're the ones that sort of guide the decision at the beginning. And of course, this is what we call a multidisciplinary you know, decision-making process. So I'm not the only one that's making the decision for the patient, but we're inevitably almost always the first person. And we're the ones obviously doing the surgery, but we also then follow them. We figure out what what else do they need. We work them up. And so a lot of the times patients will really rely on the breast surgeon, not only with the diagnosis, but afterwards, the surveillance. And then, you know, the, the one of the best aspects of my work is really after I've treated somebody for breast cancer diagnosis and they're about a year out where we, we know we're, we know that we're, we're in the clear and they just come in. It's like almost like a social visit and they tell me about their family. So it's a really special relationship, you know, to be able to say that. You can tell when you talk to patients who are devoted to their breast surgeon that there's a that there's a meaningful and a trustful relationship there that has stood the test of time for them. I mean, we we are in a situation where we're dealing with patients at their worst time. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, worst time of their life, and we're also fortunate that we are able to counsel them through and help them through that worst time pull them out of that hole that they are first in and really go through with it and come out the other side. And so, 
you know, and patients really appreciate that, I think, and, and that connection. And so it's just, it's not just from the patient's perspective. I really look forward to the follow-ups, honestly, mm -hmm. with, with my patients. I want to know how they're doing. Of course, I worry about the recurrences and other things from a cancer standpoint, but as a whole human being, I really want to know what they're, what's going on with their life. That's so nice. It really, it's a great yeah. field because on our end too, we get to see patients every year for yeah. mammograms. Yeah. When we do the needle oaks, I mean, we send them off to the operating room. The thing I always say is, See you for your next negative mammogram yeah. because they come back, you know, yeah. post-op when the cancer is out. So I, that's part of the reason yeah. why I love the field so much. Yeah. I always say next time at Wegmans. Very <laughs> 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 food century. <laughs> that's they, they seem to like it. <laughs> it's the I right, love it. It's the right crap. But you see patients that you see patients that are not that don't have breast cancer as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, high-risk patients. You know, people who need to have breast cancer ruled out. And sometimes the only way to rule out a cancer is to take out something and check it with pathology to make sure. Um, it's, so not everybody that I see really, you know, is a cancer patient. And so not every discussion, I think, is deep down in the hole. You know, some, some patients really are there for me to talk them off ledge. Right. And so that's important, too. I think that's why the role of yeah well I mean I think that's why the role of the surgeon is so important. I really don't think a good breast surgeon is somebody who takes everybody to surgery. Mm -hmm. A good breast surgeon is somebody who knows when not to take mm. the patient to the operating room. <laughs> My brother-in-law, who's an orthopedic surgeon, always says, "Think twice, cut once." Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Probably the most common question I get asked when I deliver biopsy results are, doctor, am I going to need a mastectomy? It's really on a lot of people's minds, and it's something that I always defer to the breast surgeon to you because it's, it's really your wheelhouse. So what are the different factors that you take into consideration when you talk about um, patients having a lumpectomy and a mastectomy? What are the pros and cons of each approach? So most people, I should say, really have both options when they're diagnosed with breast cancer. I should say most patients with early stage breast cancer. And again, that's why we do the mammogram so that we find the patients um, at an early stage that are, you know, operable. Um, the decision behind whether somebody wants to do breast conservation or not has sort of different folds to it. One is, first of all, you know, how big is the breast cancer as opposed to the size of the breast? And is it just one area of the breast that happens to be involved with the cancer? Or are we talking about multiple quadrants that may be involved with the cancer? Um, and so, for instance, somebody who has multiple quadrants already involved from the get-go, unfortunately, wouldn't qualify uh, for a lumpectomy. But barring that, you know, patients who have um, a favorable tumor to breast ratio. So if you have a, you know, small um, cancer in a sizable breast, then a breast, you know, conservation is certainly an option. And I keep saying, you know, you go back and forth between breast conservation and lumpectomy. These are all the same terminology to explain the same thing. So I always tell people, you're right, every time that there are two things that people 
think about the moment that they hear the words, you have breast cancer diagnosis. It's number one, am I going to need chemotherapy? I know every woman thinks that, and I actually say that to the patients. I know you're thinking that at the back of your mind, even if you haven't asked me that, and I'll explain that to you. And the second question really is, am I going to need a mastectomy? And not everybody really needs to. It's a personal conversation also. What we found for the same stage of breast cancer is that really whether you do a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, we have not seen a difference in overall survival for the patients who are at the same stage. As long as we pair up the lumpectomy patients with radiation therapy after the fact. And so I, I always explain to the patients from the beginning, these are your two options from a surgical standpoint. One is a lumpectomy, which is a smaller operation. One, another option is a mastectomy. If we wanted to consider a lumpectomy, you would be a candidate if you know this person had, to, had been. But I would always say, but the question of a, a, a radiation therapy has to be discussed from the get-go if we're talking about a lumpectomy surgery, because that's ultimately what makes that an equal option to the mastectomy. So then if I say that though, then some patients will say, well, I, I do not want radiation. So then 100% guarantee if I get a mastectomy, then I shouldn't worry about radiation. And so that's what I want. And that's a fine line too. Not every mastectomy patient gets to come out of that radiation requirement bucket, you know, too. And so, you know, I tell patients not that decision alone shouldn't drive your decision towards lumpectomy versus mastectomy. There's some medical conditions also where you may not necessarily qualify for radiation therapy. Um, there are also patients who may have had previous radiation, and so those patients really wouldn't qualify for the radiation category. So for those people, I tell them from the get-go, lumpectomy is not the best choice for you. I would never not reveal what all of the options were, which are considered equal, um, before I commit somebody to a particular surgical option. In a patient who has abnormal lymph nodes, how do you then address that situation with someone who has a known malignancy? So we will want to, most of the time, we will want to biopsy that lymph node, if not all of the times, to know whether the lymph nodes are involved with the cancer or not, because potentially that might change the order in which we go about, whether we do surgery up front or if that patient needs to have chemotherapy. Um, <clears throat> there's also differences in regards to what receptors the cancer you know, is, is expressing for certain types of cancers. For instance, triple negative cancers or HER2 positive cancers actually have a higher rate of response to chemotherapy up front. And so for those people particularly, especially, I would want to know if their lymph nodes are involved with the cancer up front because then for sure I would want to recommend chemotherapy up front for them. A lot of the times too, most patients with triple negative and HER2 positive cancers will need to consider chemotherapy at some point. So for these people, I tell patients, you're going to have to consider this anyway whether we do it you know, before surgery or after surgery, but 
if I offer it to you before surgery, there's a chance that we could downstage. The lymph node can respond to chemotherapy and be downstaged where where I wouldn't necessarily need to take out all the lymph nodes, which is called an axillary dissection. And so I tell them, I can give you a chance, give you an opportunity to get downstaged in the axilla. Or maybe some patients started off with a very large tumor, but the cancer responds to upfront chemotherapy where at first lumpectomy may not have been an option for them, can now be an option. So for these people, I tell them, you're going to need to consider chemotherapy anyways. Why not do it upfront? And so that that gives you more, more options. And on top of that, there's there are more data now. If you happen to have, say, residual cancer, so we throw chemotherapy at them pre-op, go to surgery, and what does the surgical pathology show? And unfortunately, there's still some residual cancer there. We now have some clinical trials that tell us there are more um, available therapy options for those people. And those options may not necessarily apply to people who get chemotherapy at, at a later date. So, you know, it's that all of this goes into the discussion about, you know, management of lymph node and how we want to act upon that information. So I would can you explain the difference between a lymph node dissection and a sentinel lymph node biopsy? Absolutely. The lymph node dissection or an axillary node dissection is basically removing what we call level one and level two axillary lymph nodes. So we have not to get too bogged down with the anatomic details, but there are some borders, anatomic borders that we go by in the armpit area and a full axillary node dissection. Basically, I, I identify these borders and then I take out all of the lymph nodes within these borders. And that's called a full axillary node dissection. A sentinel lymph node biopsy is basically a sampling procedure. So we would inject a couple of different types of dye you know, intraoperatively or preoperatively in the breast itself, give it a chance to travel into the armpit uh, for the, that, those different types of dye to travel to pick up the first pass lymph nodes in the armpit. And, you know, theoretically, if the first pass lymph nodes, we, we get them out and they do not have any cancer cells in them, then the chance that other, other lymph nodes in the axilla would have cancer are certainly less. And so it used to be that we had to take everybody to surgery and do a full axillary node dissection, but we've had a clinical trial named Z11 that really told us that there is really no difference in overall survival for patients who go through, you know, in the same same scenario where a sentinel lymph node biopsy would be just as effective as doing a full node dissection. We're going from older surgeries of full-blown mastectomies and full nodal dissections to breast conservation therapy and lumpectomy with sentinel node biopsies. I mean, what a difference in the last couple decades this field has made just in the surgery, let alone imaging and oncology, just in every field. It's, it's exponential improvements. Right, and you probably get so much less lymphedema right, by not taking it all Absolutely. The patients uh, that, that get counseled about lymph node surgery, I tell them if we have to do a full axillary node dissection, the lymphedema risk is about 30%. Mm -hmm. It's huge. 
if we're able to get away with the sampling procedure, it's, I quote about 5% risk of lymphedema. So yeah. there's a huge difference. Right. I have a patient that I inherited a while back who had had what's called the radical mastectomy. So you guys know mm -hmm. that's not only the removal of the breast itself, the skin, the nipple, all the lymph nodes on your armpit, but also the chest wall muscle. Oh my God. And so this lady came to me um, with this particular history and she came to me with another cancer in the other breast and there was just it was such a morbid procedure and this happened so frequently I now also have patients who unfortunately you know in their 20s and 30s have gotten diagnosed with breast cancer and I'm able to do a nipple sparing mastectomy they get a beautiful breast reconstruction where they tell me after they've you know, finish their breast cancer treatment that they actually feel and look much better than they originally were. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, not that I would ever say that this cancer surgery takes a backseat to the cosmetic part of it, mm -hmm. but we've just come so far because for so long in, in our, not only our country, but in the world, breast cancer surgery really did not consider any sort of cosmetic result whatsoever. And just that kind of debilitating surgery really carried on for a very long time in our community. And, you know, it really doesn't have to be like that anymore. Well, that's a great segue because I wanted to ask you about reconstructive So options. there are two mm -hmm. types of um, breast reconstruction in general or two schools of thought. One is using your own body tissue. It's called an autologous reconstruction. And there are different ways to do it. We used to have to take an abdominal muscle you know, and, and the skin itself to move it over here along with the fat pad. Um, we call it a mommy makeover sometimes where you basically get a tummy tuck and we've now made advancements enough where you could spare the muscle and basically just take the fat tissue and some of the skin along with the blood vessels and move it over to rebuild you the breast. But the most common type of breast reconstruction we see in this country is some type of an implant based reconstruction. So you don't necessarily go straight to a full set of implants, mm -hmm. but usually a plastic surgery surgeon will put in what's called a set of tissue expanders. So it's basically a set of spacers that we put in and expand the area over time to be able to accommodate the space that we're going to ultimately need uh, for the size of the implants that we want to have. But I will tell you the sensation is almost always gone. Mm -hmm. I am very open about that with all of my patients when we counsel about mastectomy. And it's definitely a much bigger operation than mm -hmm. a lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. Lumpectomy and a sentinel node, I can get the patient out of the OR in about an hour, give or take. If you do a mastectomy along with, um, say, a flap surgery where you're doing an autologous reconstruction, that could be really anywhere from, say, you know, seven to eight hours for the mm -hmm. one side. <clears throat> and again, not only is it a longer operation, but of course there are much more, you know, risks involved. Right. Um, and again, the sensation and how you look and how you feel, no matter how perfect the reconstruction may be, is not going to be the same. Right. Um, and so, you know, we're very honest about that mm -hmm. with the patients. It's a good conversation. We've seen a big movement in like the cancer community for people to go flat and just kind of embrace like no reconstruction. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a couple yeah. of actually very young patients mm -hmm. in their 30s and 40s that 
they've done their research, they know, and you know, it's unfortunate that they got diagnosed, but then they have their friends or resources and whatnot, and they've then done their homework and they've decided, you know, reconstruction is just fraught with too many complications and I just don't want to do it. And I've had a couple of patients that actually got a beautiful tattoo across their chest wall hiding their scar. And so, you know, breast reconstruction really is a personal choice. Fortunately, now we're able to offer it as part of the breast cancer treatment, um, and it's 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 considered to be a part of the breast cancer treatment, and so it's it's covered by insurance. Used to be that not too long ago, if patients had to go through a mastectomy, they had to pay out of pocket for the reconstruction part of it. We've seen a big um, people talk about this online, but a mastectomy is not a free boob job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah comes with a lot of other things. Yes, it does, definitely. Right. <laughs> From an imaging perspective, we always wonder how you make a decision whether a patient gets a preoperative MRI or not. Sure. I think that the breast surgery community for a long time um, used to order a breast MRI for every new diagnosis. Um, and then our society, our um, American Society of Breast Surgeons, sort of uh, came up with a set of guidelines to say that it's inappropriate to order a breast MRI for every every diagnosis. There, there's certain criteria that we use, and every patient comes with different risk factors and whatnot, and you know, it would be hard for me to describe every single risk factor as to what goes into my decision to order the MRI. If I have somebody who has extremely dense breast tissue where I think that the mammogram may be underestimating the disease and the patient is particularly interested in breast conservation, the last thing I will want to do is to do a surgery where I'm leaving disease behind. So for those people, uh, I may you know, want to get a breast MRI. But then again, there's other sides of this. If we, the one thing that we have found to be you know, consistent about getting a breast MRI for breast cancer patients is that it can certainly lead to a you know, high false positive rate, which can essentially lead to a higher rate of having to get mastectomies. Um, and you know that's again I said from the beginning it's a personal choice but we would never want to drive the decision you know force the patient to be in a situation where they think that the mastectomy is the only surgical option for them and so I'm I'm actually very careful with my criteria I don't I you guys know I don't order an MRI for every patient you know I counsel patients about it along with the false positive rate when you say false positive that means that we see some Something on an MRI that is that warrants a biopsy, but is not not cancer. cancer. That's right. correct. Yeah, which happens. And the double-edged sword of MRI is that it's our most powerful, most sensitive tool. Mm -hmm. It takes up almost all <clears throat> benign and malignant lesions. Take up contrast, which puts us in a bind sometimes because we then have to biopsy certain lesions, even though they have a relative low probability of turning into cancer for the preoperative staging process. Right. But um, but it does help identify people that need a mastectomy that that are not good candidates for a mastectomy that that for a lumpectomy that absolutely might have been no. There's definitely a role for. Right. Believe you me, I think that breast MRI is an absolutely important tool mm -hmm. for us to utilize. Um, but again, you know, like you said, 
it, it is very highly sensitive. Mm -hmm. And so when I counsel patients about something like this, I usually tell patients breast MRI is like opening a Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, we are obligated to investigate something that shows up, mm -hmm. I can't order an MRI, see something and not know about mm -hmm. it. And so eventually right. if something shows up, we're gonna have to do a biopsy. Now, the other side of that argument is, for instance, if I have a patient who comes to me and whether they're a BRCA carrier or for whatever reason they're high risk or from their personal thoughts, they decided they're going to go for a mastectomy anyways, then for those patients, I actually may not consider getting a breast MRI at all mm -hmm. because it's not going to necessarily change my surgical management. The patient already has a choice right. unless I think that the really I need to know there's more disease to this or not that I need to figure out about margins and whatnot. For those patients, I'll say, you know what, then this is not going to help my surgical decision. Let's hold off on that. Right. And before this conversation, we had talked about besides the false positive, it also leads to a slight delay in treatment, right? Like mm -hmm. it takes time to get an MRI, to read it, to get a biopsy if you need it, that kind of stuff. Which doesn't necessarily worsen ultimate outcomes, but I think the the process, the anxiety, the Absolutely. Um, delay in getting to surgery is significant for a lot of people 100%. because they, they just want to get the cancer out quite literally. Right? Absolutely. That's the end game and they want to I'll get tell you, I've awesome. had numerous patients actually from the anxiety of having to wait for not only the result of the MRI, but then having been told that they now need a biopsy mm -hmm. and they know if I get a biopsy, I'm going to have to wait another week at mm -hmm. least for the result to come back. I've had numerous patients who end up getting the breast MRI because they're unsure where if I call them and say there's something abnormal, we're going to have to do a biopsy, they tell me I want a mastectomy. I cannot go through this again. Wow. And that's, that's what powerful. really, yeah, and yeah. that's what, what drives the, the higher rate of mastectomy, honestly. You yeah. know, that's definitely a component of it. It's very interesting. Um, and one big role of MRI is that they have a large tumor that you're going to shrink with chemotherapy. Right. Absolutely. That, that's a very good point. We want to be able to do mm -hmm. a pre-treatment and post-treatment you know, assessment. So absolutely, patients who undergo a neoadjuvant chemotherapy or any type of neoadjuvant therapy, mm -hmm. ideally we will want to look at it with a breast MRI, get a full picture as to what's going on, and then you know, get it again after the you know, completion of chemotherapy before the surgery to see, you know, it, was there a response? Is breast conservation still an opli? Um, and an excisional biopsy, mm -hmm. that's like a, considered a surgical biopsy, lumpectomy, I think yep. patients use it. Absolutely, so I mean, it's the same term, not same mm -hmm. thing. Lumpectomy, typically we use that term to describe cancer surgery. So it's really the same thing. It's a surgical excision of a lesion. So lumpectomy is for cancer. If we're removing something like a high-risk lesion, then we don't call that necessarily a lumpectomy. We'll say that we're going for an excisional biopsy. What kind of advice do you give to a patient who's newly diagnosed with breast cancer right in the beginning of their journey with this? What I do to patients is, first of all, take a deep breath. You know, take a deep breath, bring somebody with you. I really my whole team knows that when somebody has a breast cancer diagnosis 
that they need to ask the patient, bring somebody with you. And it's been quite challenging with in COVID times, right? We had to really limit the number of people. I mean, before COVID, sometimes I would really have to go to a conference room, not infrequently, because patients would bring their whole entourage to talk about their <laughs> options, as they should. Mm -hmm. um, and we clearly can't really do that anymore. But even then, I would figure it out. I would say, you know what, FaceTime your, your sister, mom, whomever you want in your room. And as you know, it's still not ideal, but we want somebody to be with you because ultimately, whatever things that I tell the patient, it's going to go in one year and out the other. I tell the patients, I'm gonna take down notes for you. And it has a picture, I'll illustrate where their cancer is, I'll, I'll draw all kinds of stuff. And I actually tell them, and if they bring their notepad, which frequently patients do, I say, you're more than welcome to take notes or your husband takes notes, whatever. But I would like you to pay attention to what I'm saying. I'm taking notes for you because then this is going to sink in a little bit easier. And that original copy of the checklist that I, I fill out along with the patient during that visit actually gets scanned into you know their chart and then the original goes home with the patient and their family. So they see all kinds of, I tell them all my chicken scratch pictures, drawings and everything goes with them so that they can go home and sit down and sort of go through my notes and say, oh, I do remember her mentioning mm -hmm. something about lymph nodes. Um, and so that that's the one thing that I do really mention to patients, but ultimately, take a deep breath. This is why we do mammograms in our country. We, we catch them at an early stage so that you do have so many different options now that as overwhelming as it may be for somebody to hear that they now have breast cancer, we really can treat it, you know, and, and that's the bottom line that I try to get across for, for my patients. <laughs> I felt like that was appropriate. I, I am giving you a huge round of applause because I had I got to see you in action. Well, so that's what I mean. Ago. But you didn't get the checklist because oh, when I oh. saw you and Grandma, she wasn't fully diagnosed. So this is actually very full circle. Yeah. I went in to get my baseline mammogram and my grandma's fiftieth mammogram. We went in together. She's, Robin, she's ninety-eight. How old is she? She's 95. 95. Oh, God. Unfortunately, she ha she ended up having a little small sub-centimeter cancer, which Robin subsequently biopsied. Yeah. It ended up being her two pos uh, her ER positive, her two new negative. Mm -hmm. You, same day, mm -hmm. were so gracious and saw both her and me in your office. And it was just, I just got to see you in action. And you are <laughs> a special, I know you're a special person outside of the office, but you are truly a special breast surgeon as well and it was really cool to see both of you guys in your elements so thank oh, you yes and you have to check back to our instagram for like some grant oh, yeah, yeah she's definitely more coordinated in, in dances <laughs> i i don't think i could do what she did i watched that she filmed that after her post biopsy <laughs> yes i can't believe that oh my gosh She's so sweet. I forgot to mention that, Jack, because that's crazy. <laughs> She's Grandma so Lina, sweet. You are a gem. And She's you, so sweet. You are a gem. Nah. <laughs> Another round of applause. That was fabulous. So much amazing information. A huge thank you to Dr. Kayun Flannery for going over the most frequently asked questions she gets asked as a breast surgeon. And thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Booby Docs podcast. Until next time, let's, let's be breasties. Be breasties. 
If you like what you heard or learned something new, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. I've literally always wanted to say that and share with your friends. Make sure you check back every two weeks for more great content. We've got some incredible guests coming up and you won't want to miss them. And follow the Booby Docs across all social media platforms for more of the breast information.